remain standing, grab your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Um, if you are here today and you do not own a Bible, we want to invite you to use one of the ones we've provided for you in the chair in front of you. Um, if you're using one of those Bibles, uh, we're going to be on page 573. That's 573. And um, also want to just let you know that if you don't have a Bible, please, by all means, take that as our gift to you. We want you to have a Bible, and so you're more than welcome to take that with you. want to also remind you before we get started that um, we just took our regular offering. Um, we are going to be receiving a second offering for the Texas Boys Ranch. We talked about that for a couple of weeks um, at the end of the service. So after we receive the Lord's Supper at the end, don't run off. We're going to do it real quick, but we're going to take an offering for the Texas Boys Ranch. So uh, be thinking about that. Um, so in First Thessalonians chapter 2, we're going to begin today in verse 1. And this is what we read. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses and God also of how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed the Lord, both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as to fill up, as to, so as always to fill up rather the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Thank you, Lord, for the reading of your word. You can be seated. For the next several weeks, we're going to be talking about what this organism called the church is to be. Now, we uh, a few weeks ago, Pastor David preached a message uh, in our What We Believe series about the church. And so what we're going to be doing over the next several weeks, several months, in fact, is we're going to be unfolding that message and talk more specifically, some of the things he spoke in general, more specifically about the church. And we're, our goal is to build on what we're currently doing right now in our life groups. And that's why we encourage you every single week, if you're not in a life group, 
Get in a life group. Because what we're trying to do is prepare our church to understand the true biblical meaning of what it means to be a member of Northridge Life Church. So today what we're going to be doing is talking about the church as a preaching church, how the church should be a preaching church. And for some of you, when I say that, it may seem like a strange thing to say. It would seem like that the church as a preaching church would be given. Isn't that what we're doing right now? Isn't that what we do every single Sunday? But what do I mean when I say that the church should be a preaching church? I'm not talking about being a church with a preacher. I have a large self-interest in us being a church with a preacher, um, but, but rather that we are a church that is a preaching church. And, and so what is, here's some of the questions we need to ask ourselves, what is preaching and who does it? And is it first and foremost for what happens inside the church or an outside the church activity? So let me, as best as I can, define for you preaching. Preaching is a verbal communication of the gospel for the edification of believers and the exhortation of unbelievers. Now, we'll define those terms a little bit better as we go along. But in our text, I want you to notice, and, and if, you, if you don't have that open anymore, reopen it uh, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Keep your finger there. We're going to go back and forth for the next few minutes to it. But uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And if you notice today, Paul, directly or indirectly, references preaching as a verbal communication of the gospel at least 11 times in that passage. So let's look at those references real quick, at least a handful of them. He describes in verse 2 their boldness in God to declare to you the gospel of God. And he speaks to them in verse 3 of their appeal or our appeal. Boldness and appeal, those words, they speak about a purposeful communication, an intentionality about his message. In other words, his preaching wasn't simply you know, religious salesmanship. It wasn't just a casual chit-chat conversation about spiritual things. Paul talks uh, then about his resolve to preach the gospel. He, he, he was determined to come and preach the gospel to the Thessalonians after he had been beaten and imprisoned in Philippi. Now, you can read this whole story in uh, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 16 and then verse, uh, chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. When you get home, you can read the whole story. But he'd been beaten and imprisoned along with Silas in, in Philippi. And now he's referring to some of those events. Um, and then he was persecuted when he got to Thessalon- Thessalonica. And so he's referring to some of those events to this church. But he was... What I want you to notice is that he was so committed to God's message, so absolutely committed to God's message, that the persecution he had just experienced was absolutely no determination, or no deterrent, rather, no deterrent to his continued proclamation. In other words, no matter the persecution, he was going to keep preaching the gospel. In the light of this commitment, And in the light of his integrity to do what God had called him to do, Paul says this in verse 4. He says, but we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. Now watch this. So we speak. So God has entrusted them to something. And because because God has entrusted to them something, there's a response. By virtue of their devotion to God, they have no alternative but to speak of God's goodness openly everywhere, no matter the cost. 
They're that committed because of their love for Jesus, because of their recognition of what Jesus has done. They have committed themselves to preach his gospel. But there's more. He describes how the preaching of God's word to them had, uh, had, had you know, in the, in the way he was preaching to them, he wasn't doing it in some detached way as just like a traveling lecturer. But he literally pours his life out to those to whom he's preaching as well. He says this in verse 8. He says, we were ready... To share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. And what he's trying to tell us, church, is that preaching requires more than just a platform, more than just a congregation. It it requires the unending outpouring of sacrificial love in order to be effective. His heart for them, the heart, his heart for the Thessalonians, was on display when he says, we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. Now, you combine that with what he said about sharing his life as well. He's saying that their preaching wasn't just religious proselytizing or social benevolence, but it involved both an appeal to their souls coupled with genuine service. And next he uses three synonyms of preaching, three words that surely point to the contents of his preaching when he says, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. What do those words mean? Well, it means that they challenged the church while they also comforted the church and corrected the church. And and, and they did all of this through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, he didn't have one message for one approach and another message for another approach. All of this was done through the preaching of the gospel. So how did the Thessalonians respond to this proclamation of truth? Paul joyfully reports, you received the word of God, which you heard from us. Verse 13. And then he also celebrates the fact that the fruit that there is fruit that's continually being produced by their ministry when he says to them in verse 13, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work, present tense, in you believers. Though Paul had moved on from Thessalonica, the gospel he proclaimed was still working among them, convicting of sin and instructing believers. His last mention, now I want you to notice this, His last mention in our passage of preaching ministry among them is tied to a condemnation of both their persecutors and the Jews, who he said killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. And all that's in uh, Acts 17, 1 through 9. You can read about all that, how that happened. And he says this, and they displease God and oppose all mankind. Well, how are the Jews in this case uh, displeasing God and opposing all mankind? Paul's going to answer that question in verse 16. He says, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. The attack, now listen, what does all that mean? The attack of the enemies of Christ is always directed towards the word as God has given it. It always starts, you know, it doesn't necessarily, the enemies of God don't necessarily attack the institution. In fact, sometimes they celebrate that. But when it comes down to, thus says the Lord in the written word of God, that's where the attack is always pointed. And guess what? It's been that way since the beginning. In the very first instance that we see in scripture of the enemy's activity, what did he say to Adam and Eve or to Eve when he deceived her? He said, did God actually say so god had said clearly and what does the enemy come and do he comes and brings doubt about what god had said about the word of god the devil hates preaching he hates it 
Jesus said that he was the father of lies. So it would naturally follow that he would resist at all, at all points the clear proclamation of the truth. God speaks only truth. God will never lie to you. God will never deceive you. God will never tempt you. God speaks only truth. But the enemy's agents are ever present to counter that truth with all manner of lies and deception. All manner. Every, why is this important? Because if you look through your scripture, starting at Genesis 1 all the way to the end of Revelation, every single activity of God in the scriptures began with a word. Every single one. Think about that for a minute. Think about that as you think about this context of preaching. Every single word, every single activity rather, began with a word. Let's look at the history of some of his works in the Bible. First of all, God began creation with a word. The Bible says, he spoke. Genesis 1-3, he said, let there be light. And the result was there was light. A few verses later, he announced within, his, within the Trinity his intention to create humanity in his own image. He announced it. He proclaimed it. If you'll allow me, he preached it. After man fell to the devil's temptation, I love this, God preached actually the very seed form prototype of the gospel to the serpent. He preached it to the serpent. And you know how he did it? As a guaranteed curse on him. He said this in Genesis 3.15. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, which by the way is Jesus, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Jesus would come, this, this verse is saying and said everything right, that the serpent's cunning and human sin had overturned. A little later, God revealed his cosmic plan, the whole plan for the gospel, preaching it to Abraham, the father, as a promise, the father of all the people of faith. He preached it as a promise, not a curse. In Genesis 12, 2, he says to Abraham, and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and watch this. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed through the the faith, the seed of Abraham. Christ is risen. And now every family, every nation, every race, every tribe, every tongue on the face of the planet has access to become a part of the family of God. Through you, Abraham, every family on earth is going to be blessed. God is literally preaching the gospel to Abraham. 400 years later, a little over 400 years, God commissioned Moses as his preacher. He tells him to go to Pharaoh and tell him in the authority of the great I am that we sung about this morning, who was sending him to let his people go from their slavery in Egypt. In all the prophecies of the Old Testament, men are commissioned to keep the promise of the coming of Messiah alive ever before the people. Men like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Micah, Zechariah, and many, many others were told to keep preaching, keep preaching, tell people I'm coming, tell people I'm going to do something. And then... When the fullness of time had come, according to the book of Galatians, one comes who the Apostle John in his gospel describes as the Word. The Word. It's the title that he attaches to Jesus. What does this Word mean? It means, this title, the Word, mean? It means that all that God had said, all that he had promised in the past, would find its perfect fulfillment in this one personified Word. God had spoken now through the Son. God had nothing more, nothing more to add to what he would proclaim to the world through him. He's done. That's it. That's my word right there. 
Nothing more to add, and he still hasn't added anything. Jesus Christ is still the Word. He is still the final utterance of God. He is it. That's it. Hebrews 1.1, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, in this last epoch, the last era of human time, in this last time, in this last days, he's spoken to us. How? By his son. He spoke to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So preaching, as we understand it, all this stuff Paul was talking about in that passage, preaching should be nothing more and nothing less than the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Applied to all manner of life, all kinds of situations, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the answer. He has always, what does the gospel of Jesus Christ state? We talk about it all the time here, but it states this, that Jesus has always been God. That he became flesh and he never lost his divine nature. That he fulfilled everything required to be pleasing to God. And that he suffered the just wrath of God for the unrighteousness of mankind in our place. He rose from death after three days. He reigns as the undisputed king of the universe forever. And he will return one day to judge the world. And that alone is the context of biblical gospel preaching. That's the message. That's the word. It's not a given, this is where it gets a little sad, but it's not a given in our culture, especially in the West, in America, that every building that calls itself a church, every congregation that calls itself a church is preaching that message. I'm here to tell you that. Just, you know, a lot of times I'll hear hear people say, well, that that church is a little different, but they love Jesus. That's great. But I want to ask you, what are they saying? The largest church in America, in Houston, I'm sad to tell you, rarely points to the biblical Jesus if they mention him at all. They've been criticized for this, and I think rightly so. What they're spewing out is not biblical preaching. It's motivational pop culture pep talks to comfort and not confront. It's, 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 they're, they're reinforcing and not wrecking cultural idols for the lost. Preaching that God approves. Listen to me carefully. Preaching that God approves persistently warns people to abandon all they trust in for salvation and to flee from the coming wrath. It tells them that they have to forsake everything to follow Jesus. Jesus is not your ticket to to everything this life has to offer. It is your invitation to give up everything this life tries to tempt you with. Jesus says, lay it all down. Don't snatch it all up. Don't seek more of it. It's killing you. Let go of it because Jesus is the treasure. And he says if if we'll lay down everything and follow Jesus alone, then we'll gain treasure in heaven that cannot be corrupted. May Northridge Life Church always be a place where people are constantly feel genuinely loved. But they never feel genuinely loved at the expense of being faithfully told the truth. We want people to know the truth while they feel genuinely loved. And they're not mutually exclusive. See, I want to say, I know that things don't last forever. I'm not going to be around here forever. Y'all either get rid of me or I'll die. You know, one or the other, it's going to happen. But I want to say at the end of whatever this looks like, I want to say at the end, like Paul did to the Ephesian elders when he had preached his last message to them, and he knew he wasn't going to see their faces anymore. He said this, he said, Therefore I testify to you this day, elders, that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And that is what I want to be my final testimony in this spot.
Sadly, there seem to be fewer and fewer churches committed to proclaiming Christ alone. They'd rather tell you healthy or helpful hints for a healthy life, you know, those sort of things. We're not interested in doing that here. Well, we, and it doesn't really matter, if I can be honest with you, it doesn't matter the impact to our budget or our attendance. We are going to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and only the gospel of Jesus Christ here. May God forgive us if we ever fear the disdain of man more than we fear displeasing God. It's his church, it's his message, and he makes the rules. Can we all agree on that? But there's more for us to consider about our preaching. First of all, where is preaching to take place? Does it only take place here in the church on a Sunday morning? Or does it take place elsewhere as well? Oftentimes, and I hear this all the time, see on social media and such, that people will condemn what they think is a lack of evangelism on Sunday morning services. That, you know, we're not making tearful appeals for people to come and know Jesus and that sort of thing in in our Sunday morning services. And the reason they do that is they believe that the Sunday morning service exists. We get together solely for the sake of the lost, especially the forgotten and the destitute. But oddly, and I challenge you, oddly, you cannot make a case for that from the Bible. You cannot open the New Testament and search all its pages and say, well, the, the, the church exists so that lost people can come in and get saved. You can't make that case. The purpose that it lays out, and you can see this especially in passages like 1 Corinthians 14, the purpose it lays out for the gathering of the saints in what we call services is preaching for edification. Now, Many assume when they hear the word edification that, that that word is simply a synonym for encouragement. You know, we tell each other how great we are and that sort of thing and pump each other up. But it's actually a construction term. The word edification is actually a construction term. It literally means a building or the action of building. It's where we get the word edifice from. So when we come together... We do so, listen to me carefully, the reason you're here this morning, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and the reason we're here talking to you, the reason we baptize in your presence, we we take the Lord's Supper together, all of those things, when we come together, is to do so for the building up of the saints. What we're doing here is we're focusing on enhancing the structural integrity of fellow Christians. I can tell by your reaction that don't sound right to you. No, we got to drag homeless people in here and make sure that they come weeping to the altar. No, that's not what this is about. This action of edifying each other and, and building each other up in our faith is also called discipleship. And what I want you to know when I say discipleship, I was a part of a church for many years that was what I called a heavy-handed discipleship um, church. There, you know, it's almost like you got a little, a little graduate degree of being able to beat people up for their sin and everybody else just got beat up for your sin. That was kind of the way discipleship worked in that church. But I wanted to hear, tell you here, as the pastor from this, this position in the building, that there is no distinction in this church between disciplers and disciplees. Now, y'all are struggling with me this morning. First, you struggled on the, on the we're not here to drag homeless people in, but let me tell you this. There is no distinction between disciples and disciplees, disciplers and disciplees. Every one of you, every one of you that calls on the name of the Lord in some manner should be a discipler. Every single one of you. And every single one of you who is discipling someone should be being discipled yourself. It's true for me. It's true for you. Every one of us. I can prove it. 
Hebrews 10, 24. And let us consider, let us think about this. Let's dwell on this. How to stir up one another to love and good works. You know what that is? That's discipleship. That's edification. Not neglecting to meet together. In other words, if you guys ain't showing up, you ain't getting edified is what Paul is trying to say. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is meant to be a mutual action between all of us. Can I get an amen? Y'all are scaring me this morning. That, that, that last message may come sooner rather than later, I'm, getting, I'm starting to feel like. The way we stir each other up. Now, this is what I want you to get. We're bringing this all together. The way we stir each other up and encourage one another is through the giving and receiving of the word. That's how we do it. We do it from me to you on a Sunday morning. We do it in your life groups. We do it when we're encouraging each other in the foyer. We're doing it right now with the little kids in the back. We, we encourage, we edify, we, we disciple each other only through the word. This is the only thing we've been given in order to do that. Five helpful hints will not help. The scripture is what you need. The living, breathing word of God, active and powerful that it's called, that divides even the thoughts and the intents of a man. This is what you need to grow more like Christ. We do it through the giving and the receiving of the word, the gospel. We proclaim it, we listen to it, we sing it, we pray it. But through preaching in all of these ways to one another. But this is not to say, now, now you're all going to be able to breathe a, a collective sigh of relief. This is not to say that people can't or people shouldn't come to know Christ in the midst of our Sunday morning services. Thank God they do. We baptized people this morning who were moved to follow Christ by hearing the word preached in church. Paul even acknowledged in, in 1 Corinthians 14 the possibility that an outsider would come into our services and submit their life to God. But the Bible doesn't present the congregational gathering as the first means of winning the world. Even though many churches have become a kind of mass evangelistic salvation factory type of enterprise. So how do we present the gospels to out, the gospel rather to outsiders in a way that compels them to believe? We preach to people outside. We preach inside to each other for edification. We preach to people outside through exhortation. And what that means is the communication emphatically urging someone to do something. And all of us are called to do it. 1 Corinthians one twenty one. I love this. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God, watch this next phrase, through the folly of what we preach. That means foolishness, by the way. Through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. In other words, the Jews want to see something and the Greeks want to think about something. But Paul says in verse 23, we preach Christ crucified. And that's a stumbling block to the Jews and it's folly to the Gentiles. But for those who are called, both Jews, both Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Why, Paul? For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The world is not going to figure out how to know God by using their brain. They're not. You can talk to them until they're blue in the face. They're not going to figure it out. You can give them all the best books ever written on the subject. They're not going to figure it out. But God has armed all of his followers with a message that we call the gospel, the good news of Christ crucified, resurrected, ascended, and reigning, the message of Jesus 
will confound religious folk. When you preach the message of Jesus and you invite people in to trust him, this is what you hear. Well, I thought I had to do this, 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 and this, and I thought I had to be this kind of person. And the Bible says that whoever believes in the name of the Lord Jesus shall be saved. It becomes a matter of of just confounding religious people. It messes with their rules about how to get to God. But guess what? It also stinks to worldly people. Because the idea of giving up everything and trusting in God, it, it pushes against their illusions of control and unbridled freedom. But to God's elect, to those who have been called and enabled to believe, the gospel is the perfect display of both the power and the wisdom of God. Though they say it's foolish and it's weak, we know who have believed that it's wiser and it's stronger. Amen? But who's responsible for this proclamation of God's wisdom and his strength to the lost, fallen, sinful, and dying world? And clear as I can state it, every one of us who calls on the name of Christ is responsible, here's the scary word, to be preachers out there. Out there. Some of you are scared to death to be a preacher in here, and I'm going to tell you, it's a thousand times easier to do it in here than it is out there. But that does not relieve us of our responsibility to be constant proclaimers of the goodness of the Lord expressed in the gospel out there. We're all responsible. We're responsible for the edification of the body. We're responsible for the declaration, exhortation uh, of the people outside through the gospel. This is another aspect of a preaching church. Paul says that the function of leaders, people like me and the elders who handle the word in church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, is to equip the saints for the ministry, for the building up of Christ, uh, for the building up of the body of Christ. In other words, our job doing this is to train you to do that. The work of ministry that Paul refers to is outside. It's evangelistic stuff. The building up of the body is the inside, edifying fellow members of the church stuff. But both represent the whole church's call to preach and proclaim the gospel. Remember, no matter whether we're talking to folks inside for their edification or outside for their exhortation, we are still using the gospel. That's what we, that, this is our only tool in our toolbox, folks, the gospel. If there's any doubt about every member's responsibility in this area, if you think, I don't think that's right, I'm not gifted, I'm not supposed to be doing this, let Jesus convince you. He said in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now let me clear some things up, no matter where your theology is. If you have placed your trust in Christ, you have received the Holy Spirit. Okay, let me try again. If you have placed your trust in Christ, you have received the Holy Spirit. Thank you. But before you clap too hard, if you have received the Holy Spirit, then you are responsible and you are empowered to declare the reality of Jesus Christ's gospel. So you can't have one without the other. can't walk around talking about your Holy Ghost heebie-jeebies and not be willing to open your mouth out there because that's why he empowered you. And this... Before I sound just kind of cold and hard, this can be a very intimidating proposition, and I recognize that. You might say, well, come on, man. I've never been to seminary. I don't know my New Testament from my old, and I don't even like talking to people. But preaching, please hear me. This is what we're talking about when we're talking about being a preaching church. Preaching is not the task of a handful of religious professionals. It's not either inside the church or outside. But of every redeemed child of God bears the mantle of responsibility for proclaiming the goodness of Jesus Christ through the gospel. Every one of us. 
And so if you're, if you're shaken, thinking, well, gosh, what if he's right? What am I going to do? Let me ask you just a few questions that, that I hope, I hope will embolden you in your calling. My first question is this. You go ahead and feel free to answer these out loud. First question is this. Do you love Jesus? Do you? See, it's been my experience fairly empirically that people have no difficulty talking about what they treasure the most. Ask Pastor David about soccer. Ask Paul Brooks about heavy metal music. My friend, my new friend Blaine Grimes just mentioned Star Wars around him. I can't stand those Star Wars nerds, but I'm just kidding. Everybody knows I am one too. So just ask these guys. Ask Bobby about the weather. I mean, come on. These guys love to talk about what they love. And we should be no different. See, the the problem that we have oftentimes is we try to talk about Jesus. But can I tell you a little secret? If you fall in love with him, you won't be trying. Hear me. If you fall in love with Jesus, you will not be trying. You will talk about Jesus as a natural reflex of your heart and mouth. I promise you that. Oftentimes, we're hesitant to talk about Jesus for all the reasons I listed above. But can I just maybe suggest that it's not an information or even an understanding problem. It's first and foremost a passion problem. Could it be that you're maybe even assuming that there's some preferred strategy to talking about Jesus or sharing Jesus and convincing people to, li- to believe? How do I do it? How do I do it? And I've never learned how to do it. And if you were to go to one of our Christian bookstores in town, you'd find a ton of books that have been written on how to win souls. But I'm telling you, you can save your money because the very best thing you could do to be effective in telling people about Jesus is simply to fall more in love with Jesus every single day. And you won't be able to stop. Have you ever met someone that you would honestly say loved Jesus more than anything else? I love those kind of people. See, because they talk about Jesus, not church, not theology. They talk about Jesus because they're so overwhelmed still by his amazing love for them and their love for him in response. They love him. The only way to get to, to love him more is by getting to know him better. Remember that old song, to know, know, know him is to love, love. All the over 60 people are saying, yeah, rock on, Pastor Mark. And the rest of you are saying, what is he, is he having a stroke right now? You got to get to know him better to love him better. You immerse yourself in this word. You walk in his spirit. You get close to his people and you will love him more. I promise. Second question, let me ask you, do you have a story to tell? Do you have a testimony? If you have been saved, you don't have to be eloquent. Seriously. Everyone go, if you are saved, you don't have to be eloquent. You can just start telling people what Jesus has done for you. I remember when when Leslie Harper got saved and somebody filmed her baptism on on her phone and she would literally stop people at work on the street and say, watch this. Watch this. Why? She had a story to tell. God had rescued her from darkness. You don't have to be eloquent. When Jesus healed the blind man in John 9, the Pharisees accused Jesus of all kinds of things. Ah, you let him heal you, and that's who he is. And, and, and he rebuked them, they rebuked the man for believing him. But that didn't bother the man one bit. In fact, John 9:25 says he answered, whether he is a sinner, meaning Jesus, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I know, one thing I know, I was blind. Now I see. He wasn't eloquent, but by golly, he had a story to tell. He had a story to tell. What has changed in your life since Jesus found you? Have your eyes been opened? Has your soul been set free? 
how can you keep quiet then? How can you keep quiet? If you have difficulty remembering or stating what Christ has done for you, you might ask yourself, did I really put my trust in him? Or did I just do some religious duty to get him off my back? If you were dead and then resurrected, if you were blind and then healed, if you were imprisoned and then set free, let me tell you something, you would talk about it. That's what Jesus did for you if you're a believer. That's what Jesus did for you if you're a believer. Last, if you look at yourself and you say, Ah, Mark, I really want to preach to those inside and outside the church, and yet I'm so intimidated by my lack of passion, my lack of understanding, my lack of boldness. Ask yourself this simple question. Am I willing to be changed, to learn, to grow, to surrender? Let me tell you something right now. With no hesitation, Jesus is able to fill you with the joy and the compassion necessary to declare his praise. He's absolutely able to do that. He's able to put you in places and situations where you'll have the opportunity. He can give you all the power and wisdom that you require. The only remaining question then is, are you willing? Are you willing for him to do that? Are you willing to let go of distractions that keep you from knowing him more? Are you willing to spend time in his word and not as dry religious texts, but as a love letter that lets you encounter him? Are you willing to talk openly about matters of, inter- of eternal importance rather than passing fads or desires or worries or complaints? Will you meet with Jesus often in prayer so he can capture your heart and make you ever brand new? As the people of God, we have two important functions building up the body of Christ, and proclaiming the resurrected Lord to the lost world. Both of these happen through what can be called preaching. It's not an assignment for well-trained super-Christians. I don't tear my shirt off and have a big S on my chest, although that would be rad. It's not an assignment for well-trained super-Christians. It's a job through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit and the stewardship of the gospel for every single one of us qualifications for doing this are easy. Love Jesus. Can you do that? Be aware, be amazed at what he's done for us and be willing to do whatever it takes to grow in our love for him and our knowledge of him and our knowledge of him so that we might be filled with the wonder of knowing the true God. And if we do that, I'm telling you, the words will surely come more frequently and more freely. You know, I I, uh, hear people oftentimes quote this quote that's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. And if I could be very honest with you, I may go for strike three on offending you this morning, but I hate the quote. I hate it. I just despise it. And it's this, it's preach the gospel and use words whenever necessary. If you understand the New Testament, that is absolutely the most ridiculous thing you could ever say. Because the gospel is a gospel of words. It's a gospel of truth. It's a gospel of absolute, of a message, a story that must be communicated. And unless you rock at sign language, you got to use words. You cannot preach the gospel without using words. And so may God have mercy on us. May he open our mouths and stop fooling ourselves thinking we're using words whenever necessary when it's time to use words for all of us. Because I want this to be a preaching church, not just a church with a preacher. Anybody with me? Praise God. Praise God. Yeah, go ahead. We're, we're going to receive the Lord's Supper. So I'm going to call our elders forward. And 
as, as the elders come forward, I, I want to just uh, ask you, as you come to receive the Lord's Supper this morning, I want to ask you to come and to remember remember your story. I'd ask you if you had a story. And, and you have a story because the body of Christ was broken. The blood of Jesus was poured out. You have a story. And the story is, if you have put your trust in him, that you believe. Now, if you, if you have not put your trust in him, this is not for you. This is, this is a feast for family. That's what I was talking about, about this being for the edification of the body. Feast for family, because we are celebrating the fact that Jesus has redeemed us from the curse. He's redeemed us, and that's my story. Remember that old hymn, this is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long? Well, why was she praising her Savior all the day long? Because this was her story, and this was her song. So as you come and you remember this morning, ask the Father to help you to love Jesus so much that your mouth would spring open today, this week, at work, at school, that your mouth would spring open and you would proclaim and declare his goodness I'm not asking anybody to be obnoxious or weird, but just to let the overflow of your heart, the overflow of your love for Christ take over. Does anybody want to do that? You may not even know how it's going to work out, but does anybody? Come on, let me see your hand. Does anybody want to do that? Man, what would happen if God just blessed our intention to, to be more willing to preach? How, how quickly would this place fill up with people that were getting baptized because they heard the, the, the goodness of God and their hearts were convicted to come and trust Him? What a great day. Some of you others need to come and remember what Christ has done so that you don't just come to church as a spectator or a consumer, that you come knowing that there are brothers and sisters all around you that need to be built up, that need to be constructed, that need to be built as living temples for God. And you are the construction worker through edification. And so I ask God as we come, come in a spirit of repentance that God would help you. Don't, as I always say, don't make vows that I'm going to do better and try harder. Come say, God, I want to love you more. Jesus, I want to love you more. So help me to love you more so my mouth will be filled with your praise in the church and out of it. Paul says to the Corinthians, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, he took a cup after supper. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Heavenly Father, we want to be preachers. Most of us will not be vocational ministry people, God, but we want to proclaim your goodness to a lost world and to build up our brothers and sisters in Christ within the church through the gospel. So God, we ask that whatever it takes that you would help us to do that. And so Father, we just come to you right now, come to your table in a spirit of repentance, asking you to, Lord, empower us. We know that we have received the Holy Spirit, so now let us walk in the power that that brings to be your witnesses to the uttermost parts of the earth. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.